If you need a Bible, please raise your hand, and one of our frontline teams will bring it to you. If you need a tissue, they will also bring one for you as well. This morning's reading is from the book of Esther in chapter 3, looking at verses 1 to 15. These are the words of the Lord. After these things, King Hasaras promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hasaras. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Hasaras, they cast per, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it in the month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Hasaras, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's or to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may be put into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, due to with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples, to every province on its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Azaras, and sealed with a king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples, to be ready for that day. 
the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decrees was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. At some point uh, during my preparation for this, I had put together an introduction, and I think I thought it was funny at the time and sort of got us back into this Esther series since we've been out for about three weeks. Over the past week, I've been confronted with some of my inadequacies in preparation. There's been a lot of grace shared. And so, but right now, in the context of this service, I'm going to bypass that. I want to get into the text as soon as possible. So let's turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 3. I'm going to pray and we're going to dig in. There's tons here. And we're already, as Matt said, we could go home after that testimony, right? But we're going to learn. There's a lot here. It's a beautiful chapter, even though it's dark. So let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you that you knew what today would be like. You knew who would be here. You knew what you would say. You knew where every single person's heart would be when they arrived here this morning and you have words prepared for them, for them to hear and for every single person, myself included. I pray the same prayer that Matt had, that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say and that nothing of me would get in the way, that I would be at best a clear vessel, at worst that you would just sidestep me in general and you would speak your word and your truth from what you have revealed to us in this book. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I just lost this, so that's good. I don't know how that happened. Can I use the other mic? This is literally falling off my ear. I'm going to use the other mic. It's okay. I'm good. We good? Great. All right, Esther chapter 3. We've come in, if you remember, three weeks ago, Matt spoke to us of the last few verses uh, of chapter 2 and talked about the instance with Mordecai after Esther had been uh, queen of Persia for several years already. He hears about this plot to assassinate the king, turns them in. Uh, Those men get hanged. But Mordecai, rather than being rewarded in any significant way, is basically passed over. They give him a little footnote in the Persian history book saying Mordecai did such and such, and it was pretty solid, but that's all we did. And that's where we ended last chapter. And it's important that we keep that in mind as we move into this chapter. The opening words here we've got. After these king, after these things, King Hazarus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadith, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. What we do here is we set the stage for what is going to be the major conflict of the entire book. It happens between, primarily between Mordecai and Haman. That's sort of the crux of this conflict. And what happens is effectively a grudge match. Because we've got, and we're meant to see here, that Haman, uh, that rather Mordecai does this great thing and receives nothing in return. And immediately after that we see Haman, and there's nothing listed that he actually does, And he gets set up in this high, high position of authority. And so from the beginning, we're supposed to sort of get uncomfortable with that because there's there's injustice there, it seems. And so there's sort of a, a platform for conflict there. Deeper than that, we have in the ancestry of these two men an age old conflict. 
the Agagite reference, it says Haman the Agagite, uh, is a reference to King Agag, who is the king of the Immaculites. We're going to go deep here, but it's going to be, it's, it's worth it. Follow through the history here. All right, so the Immaculites are basically, there's a grudge match between them and the Israelites. They're the first nation to come after Israel after they leave Egypt. And so from square one, God sort of has said, there's going to be conflict between you guys for a long period of time. This culminates in many ways later in the book of Samuel where King Saul, the first king of Israel, is tasked with the job by God to eradicate the Immaculates and their king, King Agag. Saul defeats them but does not follow through in obedience to God leaves King Agag alive. And it culminates in this super intense scene where Samuel the prophet arrives and basically says to Saul, because you have not obeyed, you're not, your family will not maintain the kingship as was originally the plan. That will pass to someone else, to King David. And then Samuel takes out a sword and kills King Agag. And so that's the context of this immaculate relationship. Haman, as an Agagite, is a direct descendant of King Agag. And so there's a relationship that happens there. And Mordecai, as a Benjamite of the tribe of Benjamin in Israel, is a descendant or in the same tribe as King Saul. And so there's this double layer of, there is, to quote the poet T. Swift, bad blood between <laughs> these two men from square one. We don't think as much about ancestry today, but... They did, and it mattered, and then they would have known from square one. And the Israelites reading this text would know, oh dear, Mordecai, Benjamite, and Haman, the Agagite. And so we're set. The stage is set for this big brawl of some shape or form. It's important that we know that. First thing that happens, Haman's been set in authority. Verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down, paid homage, for the king had so commanded him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Mordecai has been given a command by the earthly authority in his life, right? And he chooses in this moment not to bow down, not to respect that authority. He resists in this moment. And this is the question that we need to ask ourselves as we look at this little section. Is Mordecai right in doing this? Has he done the right thing? Because we can't just assume that sort of one of the main characters in a biblical story has done something, that it's the right decision, right? We look at the life of, of King David, of many, many uh, men and women throughout Scripture, and just because they are the main character doesn't mean all their actions are right. The fun thing here is, if we look at commentaries, we look at all the study that's been done, there's two drastically different perspectives on Mordecai's actions. The first group says he was doing the right thing. The first, the first group will say that uh, if he had have bowed, to Haman, he would have been demonstrating, he would have been indicating uh, a sort of deity in Haman, that it would have been idolatry, it would have been uh, disobedience to the commandments if he had have bowed down. It would have been like worship. And so in that sense, they say he should have resisted, he did the right thing. But the other side says there's actually lots of instances throughout Scripture of Jews bowing down to authority figures, and it's simply a matter of respect. And it's not inherently negative. And there are examples throughout Scripture of this happening. It's not automatically idolatry. And they say it's actually more likely this bad blood that exists between the two men that 
Mordecai would look at this and be like, I did this, this great thing and I've got nothing and now Haman and Agagite has been raised above me. I'm not good with that. Today, I'm not going to say which side is right because there's way smarter people than me that have had this argument and it's not going to end because I say it's this way. What I think we can learn from this is actually rooted in the ambiguity of the, of the situation, that there is two distinct sides. The fact that there is ambiguity here highlights the complexity of the Christian or the God follower's relationship with worldly authority. I want to unpack what I mean there because in the scriptures, there's two different positions represented and they are somehow brought together under the the unified authority of the word of God. We have the commandment in scripture to honor earthly authority. Paul talks about it in the book of Romans. He says, all authority comes from God. We need to obey. And yet at the same time, we have very clear instances where resistance to worldly authority is the appropriate course of action. We think of uh, throughout the book of Daniel, where he's told he can only pray to the king, and he refuses. He, He prays and resists that worldly authority. Even if we look at the life of Jesus, as we should do in all situations, we see both sides. Because the same Jesus who said, you need to pay your taxes, is the Jesus that went into the temple courtyard with a whip and cleaned the place out. And the same Jesus who gave the sermon, the seven woes of the Pharisees, and basically just blasted the major authority religious figures of the day, just tore them up. It's like a whole chapter. But then when those same authority figures came to arrest him, he's passive. He doesn't resist at all. And in fact, tells his followers to not resist. So even in the life of Christ, we see both sides of this represented. And so the question for us is, because the Bible isn't saying we always need to resist worldly authority, but it's also not saying that we always obey it. The question for us is, when do we obey and when do we resist? There's some situations where you'd be like, well, that'd be fairly straightforward. If Justin Trudeau built a statue to himself and said we all need to bow down and worship his hair specifically... We would hopefully all be on one page and be like, all right, we're not going to do that, Justin. Thank you. But there's a lot of more complicated moral issues today. And it's not just black and white. It's where do we draw the line? How do we look loving? How do we truly love in circumstances and yet hold fast to biblical truth? We think of things like uh, perspectives on on war. The government says, we're going to go to war. What? Where's the line? Is just war a real thing? Do we join the military? There's different perspectives within the church there. What's the decision? Do we obey or resist? There's different perspectives on divorce. The government says, go forward with it. The Bible is a lot more firm with that. Where is the line there? On the other side, there are things that the government says are totally okay. Or rather, on the other side, that is the things that the government says is okay. On the other side, there are things that the government disallows, and yet the Bible says we need to hold firm to. Just this past week, uh, the dating website, Christian Mingle, which has long uh, existed and never provided um, the option for searching for a same-sex relationship. They said that that's not a part of our values, and so we don't offer that. This past week, a lawsuit concluded that said they can't do that. 
Someone complained, someone sued them, and the government said, no, that's discrimination, you can't do that. And so now they have to offer that. Again, where do we put the line in those situations? There are hard, they're not ambiguous, but they're difficult issues that are presented to us in this world today. I think the root for us, though, lies in cementing ourselves in our identity in Christ. And the reason that I say this is because, think about, uh, if you've had a job, probably, if it was a new job, there was a time where you weren't fully clear on what your role is, what your responsibility was. And in that context, you take that job, and then uh, a crisis happens, and you don't know what to do. Because you're brand new. You've been there for a week, and then there's usually two options. You'll either get paralyzed and be like, I don't know what to do, so I will do nothing. I'll just go with it. Or, I don't, want to, I don't know what to do, so I'll do everything. And there's dangers in both sides. And that's the result of lack of clarity in a role. I think as Christians, clarity in who we are in Christ is crucial to our ability to discern in these difficult situations, in knowing where to draw the line. Where do we love? Where do we stand firm? How do we do both of those things at the same time? We talk about rooting ourselves in our identity in Christ at Church of the City a lot. And so I just want to briefly say, because that's not just something that you just, yeah, just be more content in your identity in Christ. That's a nice thing to say, but what does that look like? So I'm just going to quickly go through three things. They're probably refreshers, but three things that are crucial for us to be digging into in order for our identity to be firm and in order for us to have wisdom in these difficult situations. The first We need to be spending time in Scripture. Maybe it's a no-brainer, hopefully, and yet it's so crucial. This is the inspired Word of God. It is His revelation of who He is, what He's done, what He cares about. We need to dig in. We need to be in this text to know what God values and how we are to live in response to what He values. Similarly, and yet not interchangeably, is our prayer life. Prayer is where we develop our relationship with God. Those of you in relationships can probably attest to the fact that it's easier to know what to buy for someone who you've known for a long time than for a stranger. I think the first, yeah. As we grow in our relationships, we know people better. We know what they would want in certain situations. We know what's important to them. We know how to make decisions based on who they are in crisis moments. Prayer builds that relationship with us and God so that in these difficult situations, we have wisdom available to us and discernment available to us. However, I'm certain all of us can think of a time where we've had a difficult uh, decision to make, we've gone to the Word, we've gone to God in prayer, and yet still clarity isn't immediately forthcoming. That's why I think this last bit is super important. Christians aren't supposed to live in isolation. Never is that even suggested. We're supposed to live in community. And there is a massive wealth of wisdom in this church here. And I think oftentimes we will come up against these issues and we will just go to war against them ourselves and just go in prayer and read the word. And we never talk to anyone. We treat it as though we're the only people dealing with these issues, and we're not. There's so much wisdom present here. 
And that's why community is such an important part of Church of the City, that we, that we get involved in our missional communities, that we go to our DNA groups, that we ask these questions, that we don't just trust that we have no blind spots, because we do. So those three things combined, I think, gives us the best bat of being able to stand firm and know where do we draw the line. When do we bow and when do we stand firm? Let's move on. Next section. What does Haman do in response to Mordecai? Verse 4. When they spoke... No, we didn't. Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they, made, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole nation of King Hazarus. There's going to be a subtitle to this section. It was, wow, that escalated quickly. <laughs> right? This seems really dramatic. Okay, Haman is like going about, one man doesn't bow to him, and his response is genocide. Seems over the top, right? Most of us would be like, all right, let's cool down. Let's just relax a little bit. Put him in prison or something. Okay, be cool. He doesn't. But I think it's important that we remember that this actually isn't that surprising of a response. Think, even in the past week, of conflicts that exist in this world that have been brought about by the acts of a single person or a small group of people that has led to the stereotype and demonization of an entire group of people. Think of what has happened with the actions of ISIS and how that has affected the overall perspective on that entire group of people. Think of what's happening in the States. My goodness, there's horrible things happening down there. And at the root of it, we see, in many ways, the same hate. It's not a genocide yet, thank the Lord. But a stereotype of African-American culture has led to this bad, horrible situation. And then the anger is going right back to the other way, where the actions of, of law enforcement, that is a few... A few law enforcement officers, too many, and yet still not all of them has led to the demonization of that entire group on both sides. And so while we'll look at this and say, wow, that's such an overreaction, people do this. Even in our own lives, in in quieter, subtler ways, we take single experiences with small groups of people or one person and use that to stereotype the entire group. We hear it in television all the time. Someone has a bad relationship and they're like, I'm swearing off dating forever. Right? But it's super serious. And there is a culture, no, not even a cultural, bigger than that, a human bent towards an us versus them mentality that rises at offense and drives towards segregation and demonization. And it doesn't always get to genocide. But it gets pretty gruesome, pretty ugly, pretty quick. And we're seeing the results of that all over the world today. So then our question is, if this is relevant, what alternative does the Bible offer? Because if we're honest, I mean, the church doesn't have a a great rap 
in some of these areas as far as demonization of other cultures? What's different about following Jesus? What do we have to show to the world that shows that we have a solution to this? What we have, in spite of our failures as a church, and certainly we need to cop to that and know that we're not perfect in this area. Good Lord, we are not. But at the root, not at the very root, but at the, much of what Jesus talks about is this radical call to unity, to a unified front that isn't based on an us versus them mentality. It's not based on worldly similarities. Jesus came and made us all equal, or rather showed us that we were all equal before God. And so in the church, we should be presenting a united front because the gospel at its core is unifying. We look at it from the very beginning, from the roots of our sin, Romans 3.23, who has sinned? All have sinned. Not just homosexuals, also heterosexuals. Not just Muslims, also Christians. Okay? Not just cops. Right? Also those that they're policing. There is sin everywhere. We are all equal before God in that context. But then with the good news, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 13, later in that same book. Again, the call goes out to everyone. There's no group of people that God looks at and says, I don't have anyone there. You can just ignore them. You can hate on them. It doesn't matter. There's no situation where that gets said by God. There is unity always. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we're baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Another verse is male or female. Every single person is brought into equality under the blood of Christ. And then the beautiful picture at the end of all things, Revelation 7, 9. He says, Behold, a great multitude of every tribe, nation, and tongue we're supposed to be a family united by nothing in many situations other than the blood of Christ. I have relationships with good friends that I would never be friends with if it were not for Jesus. One of them is here today, a German construction worker. We have nothing in common. He loves hip-hop and basketball and the Brazilian soccer team. I kind of understand hip-hop now. It's been four years. The reason we're friends it's because of Jesus. And it's those kinds of bonds that the church should be showing forth as a testament to this world that us versus them is not the only answer, that we do not need to segregate. We do not need to close in in our little social groups and defend against outward aggression. We can unite. Doesn't have to, we don't have to be aiming. We don't have to follow the pattern of this world. Lastly, we have the king's response to Haman's question. Verse 8, Then Haman said to the king, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. 
Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the house of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. That's the ask. He doesn't even tell him what people it is. He's like, there's a group, and they're the worst, and you should get rid of them. Also, here's a third of the kingdom's income as a bribe to let me do this. Or something along those lines. The king's response. So the king took his signet ring, which effectively allowed Haman to do whatever he wanted. He could stamp any letter, decree, command with the king's signet ring, and it's gold. The king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And he said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. This is a deeply uncomfortable verse. When someone who is in authority, who is called to rule responsibly, who according to scripture has been given their authority specifically by God, that's what we have to hold to, right? If we say God is sovereign, he's not just sovereign over when things are solid, he's sovereign over these decisions too. So what do we do when we see an earthly leader doing something like this? And he's not the only one. Surely we know that. History is a list of those with power abusing those without. And yet, we're called by Scripture to honor them and obey them in a certain context. And we come back to that point one again. Where do we draw the line? But I think as far as our specific view of earthly leaders, it's important that we know what our attitude towards them should be. Four things. The first thing we need to remember is that no earthly leader will lead perfectly. They're as human as us. It's easy to idolize them. It's also easy to demonize them. It shouldn't surprise us when they make mistakes. doesn't mean they aren't horrible. doesn't mean they can't be held to account but we shouldn't be up in arms. Our leaders aren't perfect. It doesn't matter if they're a pastor or a prime minister. Okay? There are mistakes made. There are sins in the lives of humans. Number two, we need to keep in mind that if a leader isn't a Christian, there's no reason to expect them to maintain Christian morality in their leadership. I think we get into these arguments all the time. Even myself, I wrestle with this. But it doesn't make any sense to expect a non-Christian leader to ascribe to Christian values, saved by the grace of God working in them and giving them wisdom that they have not asked for. It makes as much sense as looking at someone who isn't a Christian and saying, you should repent of your sins. And they'll be like, I do not believe in sins. We shouldn't expect that. We'll be disappointed every time. In tandem with that, though, we should be praying for them, especially if they're non-Christians. First Timothy 2, 1 to 2. We have this unpacked, pray earnestly for those in power. It's an interesting caveat. He says, so that we may live in peace. In Esther, they're kind of past that point, right? Leadership has made it so that they will not live in peace. But we still pray, and we're not at that point today. There's not a lot of love for Christians, Right now, we're certainly not at a genocide, though. There are many countries around the world where things are very dark indeed for our brothers and sisters. And we should be praying 
for the leaders that are over top of them. That God would give them wisdom, that God would break their hearts. At most, that they would see the glory of God and they would come to him. At least that they would, through providence, lead in such a way that we are able to live at peace. And then lastly, we need to not be bitter or angry towards them. I think it's easy, it's easy for me to be angry and unforgiving towards leaders because they're distant. And I feel like I should be able to hold them to a higher standard. But it doesn't matter. As Christians, what are we called to do? We're supposed to forgive. We're not supposed to harbor anger or resentment towards people. I don't believe it does the gospel any good when the world sees Christians just blasting everyone in authority, just screaming angrily about what's being done. It demonstrates that we don't really believe we should be forgiving and loving towards everyone. It also demonstrates that we're not quite as confident that God has everything in hand. Because if we believe that, we're not going to freak out even when things are difficult. Last thing, though. And this comes back to the verse that I read earlier from Paul in the book of Romans. And he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And the question we need to ask here is, how do we reconcile this statement with the atrocities that are committed in the name of leadership day after day after day? What do we say to God who says, everyone who has authority only has it because I've given it to them? And then Ahasuerus does what he does. Hitler does what he does. Stalin does what he does. Again, the sovereignty card, if we play it on the good hands, we've got to play it on the bad hands. And apparently... Every leader, if they have authority, it's because God gave it to them. So what do we do? That's awkward. That's uncomfortable. And this is where, generally, the cliche response would be, well, God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, which is true and divinely inspired, but a bit of a cop-out if we don't back it up with something. Amen? And this is what we need to... This is the foundation of that phrase. When we're faced with leadership that is irresponsible, that is (sighs) casual about the lives of those underneath them, that does not rule as God would have them rule, that abuses the power given to them. The foundation needs to be perspective. Things look very dark at the end of chapter 3. There's not a lot of fun happening here. There's not a lot of hope. It ends with what? The decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. Good. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. That's not good leadership. Things are not in a good situation. But we have the privilege of knowing how it all ends, don't we? If you haven't read to the end of Esther yet, man, you've got to do that. It's crazy. But God is not absent. We know how it ends, and we also know that he has been working since the very beginning to deal with this situation. That's what this entire text, this entire series is about. When God seems absent, God seems pretty dang absent at the end of chapter 3. Until we consider the way it ends, and that from the very beginning, God has been working even through the pride of the king 
to see him get rid of his queen, bring in a new queen who just so happens to be Esther, who is Jewish, who just so happens to have a cousin named Mordecai, who just so happens to not be rewarded in that immediate moment. All of these things are building towards something, and we don't see it at the end of chapter 3, but it comes. God is working in this dark situation. And the fact that we can have that perspective is the foundation for saying his thoughts are not our thoughts. Even more than that, we look at the gospel story. What happens there? Nobody's looking at the execution of Christ and saying, wow, God, you have this under control. Unless they've seen how it ends. We look at the crucifixion without the resurrection and glory that follows, and we say, God, you're a bad dad. You have let things get out of control. You are not ruling well. We would never do it that way. And yet, we look to the end and we say, wow, thank God that he is so wise and so loving and so powerful that he will bring about the greatest glory from the darkest of situations. And finally, we have the book of Revelation. And it's confusing. But I think we can all agree that one thing that is very clear is that Jesus wins. that he ends on top, that he reigns in glory. And so even in the darkest times that we're faced with today, we know that he is working towards this ultimate conclusion. There is hope that comes at the end. And so when we're faced with a difficult situation, Lauren's story is the same thing. Where's God when she has to leave Spain? And it seems like it's her dream. Like It seems like he's nowhere. But we've seen... A small bit of her story, we know exactly where he was. He was right there in Spain, bringing her to her knees so she'd come home and come to him. That's good. That's better. In moments when it seems like things are going off the rails, that God is gone from a situation, like he doesn't care, like he's not working, we need to go to these stories and preach to ourselves the truth that we know that those who love that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose this doesn't mean that things aren't hard it doesn't mean that things aren't ugly it doesn't mean we won't suffer it doesn't mean that we won't weep it doesn't mean that we won't be called to weep with those who do but it means that in the midst of those situations, in the suffering and struggles, we have a hope that God is working towards an ultimate end. And it's not a blind hope. We're not walking in the dark. He's shown us what he can do better than anyone ever could in what he did with Christ on the cross. And so let's base our hope in the dark times on the story of Esther to know that chapter 3 Leads to chapter 9, or whatever the last chapter is, I can't remember. It leads to the end. And that the fall in Genesis leads to the end of Revelation. Hope is coming in the end. We have a good king. He has things in hand, even when we feel like he really doesn't. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that in the midst of weeks like this past week, in the midst of suffering and difficulty, you are not silent. And though it feels like you may be absent, you are not absent. We've seen you work. We've seen the testament 
to your providence. You will work for the good of your people. You are working for the good of your people. I pray that that would draw us to a deeper surrender to you, that we would trust that you are a good king and we should be good subjects to you. Thank you that you love us enough to show us any of this. I pray that you'd help us to worship you well now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.